0: The sea is calm tonight. The tide is full. The moon lies fair upon the straits. On the French coast, the light gleams and is gone. The cliffs of England stand glimmering and vast out in the tranquil bay. Come to the window. Sweet is the night air only from the long line of spray where the sea meets the moon-blanched land, listen, you hear the grating roar of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling at their return up the high strand, begin and cease, and then again begin with tremulous cadence slow and bring the eternal note of sadness in. Sophocles long ago heard it on the Aegean and it brought into his mind the turbid ebb and flow of human misery, we find also in the sound a thought, hearing it by this distant northern sea. The sea of faith was once, too, at the full, and round earth's shore, lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled, but now I only hear its melancholy long withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Ah, love, let us be true. TO ONE ANOTHER, FOR THE WORLD, WHICH SEEMS, TO LIE BEFORE US LIKE A LAND OF DREAMS, SO VARIOUS, SO BEAUTIFUL, SO NEW, HATH REALLY NEITHER JOY, NOR LOVE, NOR LIGHT, NOR CERTITUDE, NOR PEACE, NOR HELP FOR PAIN, AND WE ARE HERE, AS ON A DARKLING plain, SWEPT WITH CONFUSED ALARMS OF STRUGGLE AND FLIGHT, WHERE IGNORANT ARMIES CLASH BY NIGHT. MATTHEW ARNOLD, DOVER BEACH I did not say, in minute 83, that when we cut Delina alone in the woods, she has the Ouroboros tattoo on her left forearm, and quite clearly. She raised her arm at the end of minute 83, and now at the start of minute 84, she lowers it, and she looks around, still tearful, distraught. The echo of other people's pain is inside her, just as much as her own pain. The Ouroboros belonged to Meyer, and to Thornsson. Like the bear carried Shepard's dying voice inside itself, Lena carries her guilt over her affair with Daniel, over hurting Cain, plus the deaths of Shepard, of Thornton, of Raddock, plus all the pain she might otherwise carry from her life before the events we see in the film. Remember the biologist's love for tidal pools as a child in Vandermeer's novel? And she returned to tide Pools in, quote, My third and best field assignment out of college required that I travel to a remote location on the western coast to a curled hook of land at the farthest extremity from civilization, in an area that teetered between temperate and arctic climates. Here the earth had disgorged huge rock formations and old growth, rainforest had sprouted up around them. This world was always moist, the annual rainfall more than 70 inches a year, and not seeing droplets of water on leaves was an extraordinary event. The air was so amazingly clean and the vegetation so dense, so richly green, that every spiral of fern seemed designed to make me feel at peace with the world. Bears and panthers and elk lived in those forests, along with a multitude of bird species. The fish in the streams were mercury-free and enormous. I lived in a village of about 300 souls near the coast. I had rented a cottage next to a house at the top of a hill that had belonged to five generations of fisherfolk. A husband and wife, childless, owned the property, and they had the kind of severely laconic quality common to the area. I made no friends there, and I wasn't sure that even long-standing neighbors were friends either. Only in the local pub that everyone frequented, after a few pints, would you see signs of friendliness and camaraderie. But violence lived in the pub, too, and I kept away most of the time. I was four years away from meeting my future husband, and at the time, I wasn't looking for much of anything from anyone. I had plenty to keep me busy. Every day I drove the hellish winding road, rutted and treacherous even when dry, that led me to the place they called simply Rock Bay. There... Sheets of magma that lay beyond the rough beaches had been worn smooth over millions of years and become pitted with tidal pools. At low tide in the morning, I would photograph those tidal pools, take measurements and catalog the life found within them, sometimes staying through part of high tide wading in my rubber boots, the spray from the waves that smashed over the lip of the ledge drenching me. A species of mussels found nowhere else lived in those tidal pools, in a symbiotic relationship with a fish called a Gartner after its discoverer. Several species of marine snails and sea anemones lurked there, too, and a tough little squid I nicknamed St. Pugnacious assuming its scientific name because the danger music of its white flashing luminescence made its mantle look like a pope's hat. I could easily lose hours there, observing the hidden life of tidal pools, and sometimes I marveled at the fact that I had been given such a gift, not just to lose myself in the present moment so utterly, but also to have such solitude, which was all I had ever craved during my studies, my practice, to reach this point. Even then, though, during the drives back, I was grieving the anticipated end of this happiness, because I knew it had to end eventually. The research grant was only for two years, and who really would care about muscles longer than that? And it's true my research methods would be eccentric. These were the kinds of thoughts I'd have as the expiration date came nearer, and the prospects looked dimmer and dimmer for renewal. Against my better judgment, I began to spend more and more time in the pub. I'd wake in the morning, my head fuzzy sometimes with someone I knew but who was a stranger just leaving, and realized I was one day closer to the end of it all. Running through it, too, was a sense of relief. Not as strong as the sadness, but the thought countered everything else I felt that this way I would not become the person the locals saw out on the rocks and still thought of as an outsider. Oh, that's just the old biologist. She's been here for ages, going crazy, studying those muscles. She talks to herself, mutters to herself at the bar, and if you say a kind word... When I saw those hundreds of journals... I felt for a long moment that I had become that old biologist after all. That's how the madness of the world tries to colonize you. From the outside in, forcing you to live in its reality. Reality encroaches in other ways, too. At some point during our relationship, my husband began to call me the ghost bird, which was his way of teasing me for not being present enough in his life. It would be said with a kind of creasing at the corner of his lips that almost formed a thin smile, but in his eyes I could see the reproach. If we went to bars with his friends, one of his favorite things to do... I would volunteer only what a prisoner might, during an interrogation. They weren't my friends, not really, but also I wasn't in the habit of engaging in small talk, nor in broad talk as I like to call it. I didn't care about politics except in how politics impinged upon the environment. I wasn't religious. All of my hobbies were bound up in my work. I lived for the work and I thrilled with the power of that focus, but it was also deeply personal. I didn't like to talk about my research. I didn't wear makeup or care about new shoes or the latest music. I'm sure my husband's friends found me taciturn, or worse. Perhaps they even found me unsophisticated, or strangely uneducated, as I heard one of them say, although I don't know if he was referring to me. I enjoyed the bars, but not for the same reasons as my husband. I love the late-night slow burn of being out, my mind turning over some problem, some piece of data, while able to appear sociable but still existing apart. He worried too much about me, though, and my need for solitude ate into his enjoyment of talking to friends, who were mostly from the hospital. I would see him trail off in mid-sentence, gazing at me for some sign of my own contentment, as off to the side, I drank my whiskey neat. Ghostbird, he would say later. Did you have fun? I'd nod and smile. But fun for me was sneaking off to peer into a tidal pool, to grasp the intricacies of the creatures that lived there. Sustenance for me was tied to ecosystem and habitat, orgasm the sudden realization of the interconnectivity of living things. Observation had always meant more to me than interaction. He knew all of this, I think. But I never could express myself that well to him, although I did try, and he did listen. And yet I was nothing but expression in other ways. My sole gift or talent, I believe now, was that places could impress themselves upon me, and I could become a part of them with ease. Even a bar was a type of ecosystem, if a crude one, and to someone entering, someone without my husband's agenda, that person could have seen me sitting there and had no trouble imagining that I was happy in my little bubble of silence. Would have had no trouble
1: believing I fit in. End quote. Even in these woods, Lena, the biologist, fits in, alone and lonely, bereaved. To get partially ahead of ourselves, Josephine Livingstone, The New Republic,
0: 27 February, 2018. Quote, Throughout annihilation, the shimmer phenomenon examines the spread of trauma and grief throughout a living being. When a bear kills one of the explorers, it returns with a part of her voice incorporated into it. When one being causes suffering in another, the suffering fragments and embeds within the being that caused it. Lena must face and destroy the shadow self, or it will, like the bear, continue to incorporate elements of her identity until she and her trauma are identical. She will become the grief that is her wounded marriage and lose herself. The shadow self is the id, the object that defines the subject, the dark mirror tethered to the self that must be faced if we are to escape it. When Lena destroys the humanoid, all its effects, the crystal trees, the mutations everywhere, burn
1: away in a cleansing fire. End quote. The process has already begun. Lena it has been, been replaced. Her struggle now is that of the ship of
0: Theseus. How much of herself will remain in the Lena that is left behind? Sam Littlefair explains on Lion's Roar, Buddhist Wisdom for Our Time, 30th April 2020, quote,
1: According to Buddhism, we living beings are trapped in the
0: cycle of existence known as samsara. In samsara, we wander aimlessly and experience unbearable suffering day and night, year after year, life after life, because of the tight grip of our grasping at self. In order to heal this disease-like condition, first we have to find its cause, and then we apply the medicine-like path of training to restore our original good health, which is enlightenment. There are times in our lives when we wish we could change the ending of the story. Sometimes we lose what we care about, we are separated from those we love, our bodies fail us as we get older, we feel helpless or hurt, or our lives just seem to be slipping away. These are all aspects of Dukkha, one of the principal teachings of the Buddha. Dukkha means suffering, discontent, unsatisfactoriness, hollowness, change. The Buddha said, All I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. Suffering, in his teaching, does not necessarily mean grave physical pain, but rather the mental suffering we undergo when our tendency to hold on to pleasure encounters the fleeting nature of life, and our experiences become unsatisfying and ungovernable. End quote. Unsatisfying and ungovernable, like Lena in her marriage, or Lena in her affair. And now, here she is, in the woods, within the shimmer, alone. She looks to her right, then to her left, then gasping, she looks down. She raises her left hand again, wipes her eyes with her fingers. According to her watch, the time is about ten past one. Two minutes ago, it was 2.46. She gasps again, catches her breath, lowers her hand, and composes herself. She looks up briefly, seems on the verge of crying again. Instead, we cut second fifteen, another angle on woods as Lena walks into frame at lower left, heading away from camera. Aside from the prismatic splay of light through the trees, one close tree with obvious pink growths, this could be any forest, any day, in Lena's life. Lena walks, becoming smaller in the frame. We hear the tide before we smash cut second twenty-eight to Lena on the beach, ocean to her right. Sunlight through clouds above, with hardly a sign of the shimmer but for some color in the shallow water beyond Lena, what could be oil in the waves. This could be any beach, but Lena stands, rigid, shoulders back, her pack removed, rifle in one hand, in profile facing the sea, but cheating toward camera. The transition is abrupt, unlike in the script. Exterior, beach, day. A long hook of beach where the swamp gives way to the sea. Massively empty, Miles of undulating dunes and the great flat ocean. Along the beach, strange shapes rise, visually similar to the tumor-like growths on the plants and buildings. But these are made of sand, like massive termite mounds, as much as 30 foot high, morphed into spires and oddly organic abstractions. Only one other landmark can be seen. A couple of miles distant, seen through a blue haze of air and sea spray, the lighthouse. Slender, tall, and white, where one can still see of the original construction, behind the brightly colored moss. Leading that direction, a snaking line of footprints are clearly visible in the damp sand, the trail left by Dr. Ventress. Cut to... Lena, standing on the pale sands. Wind pulls at her hair, she looks down at her arm, where the bruise has now resolved into something immediately
1: recognizable the dark circle and blurred indication of patterns have become a tattoo, exactly the same distinctive image that Thornton wore, the Ouroboros. She touches it with her thumb as half expecting it might wipe away, and when she pulls her thumb away, something moves in her flesh, not just a flex, much more fundamental, a bone shifting and contracting, or a muscle worming its way to a new position. Lena closes her eyes. Exterior, the ocean, day. From the ocean, a single figure walks along the shore, between the abstract sand structures. In the foreground, the back of a huge whale-like creature breaks the surface, then slides back beneath the waves. Exterior, beach, slash lighthouse, day. Lena stands on the beach. A low tide and now second 35 we angle from behind Lena,
0: camera tracking left around her. Lena's pack is on the ground to her left. She looks off to the right and second 38 takes her first step. There are no tracks, not ventresses to be followed, not even Lena's arriving where now she leaves her pack. Lena has come to the shore, but must turn to continue the business of life rather than give in to death. Getting Ahead Again, Livingstone, The New Republic. Quote, The lighthouse is surrounded by crystal trees that resemble the synapses of the brain. This lighthouse is desire, as with Wolf, and also the frontier that separates our own minds from others. Here we see an embodied meditation on subjectivity and trauma. Lena finds the meteor that is punched through the lighthouse's wall and climbs down the wound it created into the subconscious. There, she finds Dr. Ventress, who explodes into a kind of primordial cell manufacturer. As in the repeated scenes of cell observation that weave through the movie, here Lena witnesses life itself: the cells split and split and split and create a new being. That being itself represents a splitting, since it takes on a human
1: form, Lena's. Venerable Biku Bodhi explains on bodhimonastery.org, tenth August, twenty o two. In the Buddhist
0: worldview, this shore is samsara, the cycle of rebirth driven by ignorance, craving, and karma. And the far shore is nirvana, the birthless and deathless. Whereas samsara is the realm of suffering and commotion, nirvana is the state of supreme bliss and peace. The task the Buddha sets before us is to move from this present shore of samsara to the far shore of nirvana. And what takes us across from the near shore to the far shore is the Buddhist path. That is why the Buddha compares his teaching to a raft. It enables us to cross the stream and reach the far shore. End quote. But this is no mere stream. Whether this is Chesapeake Bay off Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge in Maryland, or the Gulf of Mexico, miles south of Blackwater River State Park in Florida, it is a much larger body of water, a much larger obstacle, and Lena still has business on land. Lena heads to the right, reflected in the wet sand beneath her, two Lenas walking together. Second 45. The camera still tracking around behind where Lena was, we see crystal trees in the distance, our first real sign that this beach is still within the shimmer. And dwarfed by the nearer crystalline structures, the lighthouse, small in the distance. Lena continues toward it, and just as we cut to Lena from her right, time runs out for this minute.
1: We spoke. What was it we said? Watching, he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside.